0: What is it about this loving Jesus and his good news that gives rise to resistance and opposition? There definitely is resistance and opposition, and it doesn't really make sense, does it? This loving Jesus who comes to do us great good and his gospel, his announcement and proclamation of good news, not bad news. Well, certainly ignorance plays a part in this. There's always the fear of the unknown. You can't trust what you don't know or you don't understand. And so that can initially be the reason there is resistance and opposition. But once the basic information has been shared... God is holy and man is sinful and Jesus came to bridge the gap and die in our place and rise from the dead. And God says, if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you'll have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Once that basic information has been shared, what is going on when people resist? Jesus claimed to be Messiah. Jesus claimed to be king. I think the answer is something along these lines. People resist because they feel threatened. And they feel threatened because their deepest motivation is autonomy. And their deepest motivation as autonomy is because their deepest sin is pride. Now, let me explain. Pride says, I'm in control of my life. I take orders from no one, not even God. Autonomy says, my life is my own and I'm living for me. Self-rule is my highest value. Therefore, when that person is, contr- is confronted by the true and full gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, prideful autonomy instinctively feels threatened and should. It goes like this. I want to find myself, pursue my dreams, entertain my lusts. Do what I want when I want, and your job is not to hinder me or judge me. Your job is not even to tolerate me. Your job is to encourage and celebrate me as I pursue my dreams. Silence is not an option. King Jesus comes along and the turf war is on. It's not a battle of the sexes. It's not a battle of the races, and it's not a battle of the generations. It's a battle of wills. It is a cosmic competition for control, and it's fought on the battlefield of the human heart. The gospel says to live, you must die. To be saved from your sins, you must turn from what your flesh loves. To find your life, you must lose it. To be healed, you must be broken. To be justified, you must first be condemned. And to be saved, you must first be damned. And the flesh pushes back. The flesh says, My life is fine the way it is. My sins aren't that bad. I can heal myself, thank you very much. And I will determine who I am. I will determine my identity. I will determine my gender. I will determine my sexual orientation. I will determine everything about my life. And this talk of condemnation is making me uncomfortable. So at that very moment, one of two things will happen. If enabled by God, the Holy Spirit, blind eyes will be opened for the first time to the beauty and the worth and the glory of Of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit will enable a person to see their sin and the beauty of Christ. And then their heart will soften like wax under a hot sun. And then they will run. They will not walk. They will run to the open arms of Jesus. With joyful faith. Joyful faith. That's if God the Holy Spirit enables this to happen. Or the other thing that will happen if the Holy Spirit stays away is the person will remain in blindness to all that is good and right and true. They will close their ears, harden their hearts, resist the truth and oppose Jesus in their hearts. They will oppose Jesus in their hearts. Now, here's where it gets interesting and sort of tricky. Depending on the person's personality and depending on what they have to lose culturally and relationally. This opposition takes different forms for the person is that's kind of shy and introverted and probably in the south in the Bible belt. Their opposition will take the form of silent, inward resistance to Christ an indifference that others don't necessarily know about. It'll be more hidden, more veiled. They may be in church. They may carry a Bible. They may even profess to be a Christian. But there is a, a, a deep opposition to Christ that. Oftentimes, only he knows it's kept secret. Or on the other hand, depending on the personality and what might be lost, it might grow into an open hostility, an open verbal rejection of Christ and 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 bringing people with you down that path. You may want to be an evangelist for that cause. But in either case, this opposition to Christ is real and it needs to be confronted It needs to be exposed for what it is and confronted by the truth. And that's really the title this morning, Confronting Messianic Opposition. Last week, we saw Messianic Claims, and now today, Messianic Opposition, and Jesus confronts it. So go with me in your Bibles to Matthew 11. Our text today is 16 to 24, and let me give you the text idea The big idea of the text, as Matthew wrote it for his original readers, in Matthew 11, 16 to 24, Jesus confronted the growing messianic opposition of his generation. That leads us to the sermon idea. So the text was then and there. The sermon is here and now the sermon idea is this. Jesus confronts messianic opposition in every generation. And it is an opposition that takes many forms. My purpose this morning is to confront then messianic opposition in this generation, in this room, and through this live stream. That is the very purpose of this sermon. I want to take on the tone of the passage as the preacher of this passage. And I want opposition to Jesus that is perhaps hidden in the heart of an unbeliever here this morning to be exposed and to be confronted. And as that happens this morning, I want to remind you all along the way that it is not too late to change your mind. For some of the folks Jesus addresses in our text this morning, it seems like it was too late. But their situation is a little different from our situation. And I just want to say the good news this morning, if you come under conviction of sin... And if you feel like this is directly speaking to your heart, the good news is it's not too late to change your mind, to change your mind about yourself, about Jesus, about God, and to begin to follow him. Now, the question that this text, Matthew eleven sixteen 16 to 24, have you found it? Did your phone get to it? Your iPad, your pages? Whatever you're looking at, make sure you have these words in front of you. This is the authority, not me, the Bible. 16 to 24 is our text. The question that this text answers is the how question. How did Jesus confront messianic opposition? He did so in two ways. The first is 16 to 19, a revealing illustration. The second is 20 to 24, a searing condemnation. So let's begin to unpack these Then, Number one, Jesus confronts his uh, opposition with a revealing illustration. Follow along 16 to 19. He begins with the word of contrast. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. And you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Here is a revealing illustration. And it's original with Jesus. It's not found in any other Uh, writings outside of the Bible. It's nowhere else in the Bible. And so this would have been an illustration that he observed himself living his life, watching children play one day in the marketplace there in the city, observing what they were doing. and He brings that out now and connects it to this opposition he faces. He began to talk about opposition back in verse 12. If you will look back a few lines in your Bible. Verse 12 says from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And we explained that last week. He's explaining Jesus is talking there now about persecution and violence against himself and John and the kingdom and and how these violent men like Herod and and the Pharisees were trying to take it by force. And so he's already alluded to this opposition there in verse 12. And then in verse 14, he gave a conditional promise to his generation. If you will accept John, uh, if you are willing to accept it, believe it, receive it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. John will be the fulfillment of Matthew, uh, of Malachi 4, 5, and 6 if you receive him and believe in him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, is the exhortation. And right there after verse 15, you can draw a big dark line right now in the gospel of Matthew. A big dividing point is now about to happen. Things are going to change. The tone is going to shift and Jesus is going to begin to speak in ways that he hasn't before from here on out. And it happens right here between verse 15 and 16. And you notice in verse 16, he says, but. So there's this violence happening and there's this offer going on of the kingdom. But Jesus does not hold out great hope that this offer is going to be received, does he? He doesn't have great optimism now in the people of Israel. And so he says in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation, this generation of Jews, my generation, he's saying. Jesus now goes on the offensive. This opposition has been there really from the beginning, but it's been bubbling. It's been growing. It's get, And it's going to continue to do so throughout the entire gospel. And he is now going to go on the offensive. He has set back, he has studied his generation, and he has come to a conclusion. And here is the conclusion. They simply cannot be pleased. This generation is happy with nothing. They're never satisfied. They're never content. They cannot be pleased. Now, this revealing illustration, I'm going to start with John, the forerunner. We could have started either place, John or Jesus, but I'll start with John. And so you see in verse 18, as Jesus explains the illustration, he says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. We'll begin with the forerunner then. The forerunner comes on the scene. We don't take this with an absolute literalness that he never ate or never drank. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he ate very sparsely and he didn't drink wine. John comes on the scene eating grasshoppers and wild honey. John is very lean. He, he, he lives a lean lifestyle. He has a very intense demeanor. His message is very intense. It's a message of repentance and judgment and sin. And, and the axe is laid at the, at the root. And, and all of these fiery words of judgment that God is going to bring on Israel if they don't respond to his uh, call to repentance, Right. We saw that back in chapter 3. John's message is a a prophetic message. He comes on the scene and John is like a funeral dirge. John's life and message is like a, a mournful funeral song calling people to see their sin and to mourn their sin and to grieve their sin. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here in this illustration. It's the children who say, we sang a dirge and you did not beat your chest. We offered up this, this funeral song. We're going to play this game. Hey, let's play funeral, everybody. And we sing the song and and the other children don't go along. Uh, They don't mimic the adults by pounding on their chest and mourning the great loss And that's what Jesus is saying here as John comes onto the scene. The Jews hear the song of John and they refuse to beat their chest in grief over their sin. They refuse to mourn their sin. They refuse to repent of their sin. And so back to the illustration. So it's like the children are playing there. and They've offered now the mournful funeral game and the kids don't want to play that game. They say, "Okay, you don't want to play funeral. Well, then let's play wedding. Let's play something joyful. Let's play something that's. Full of happiness. Let's play the wedding game. And these kids had seen weddings before and they have flutes playing at weddings and it's, and there's dancing at weddings and they said, let's play that song. And, and lo and behold, it's the same response. No, we don't want to play wedding either. Two ends of the spectrum then. Two great different options. It is the wedding then that speaks of Jesus. Look at verse 19. The Son of Man, the Messiah came eating and drinking. Jesus went to banquets. Jesus went to weddings. Jesus went to feasts. Jesus drank wine. His first miracle was water into wine. Here's the son of man now with a utterly different lifestyle, a different demeanor, a different approach to ministry and life than John the Baptist. And what do they say about him? They say, look at him. He overeats and he overdrinks. Look at him. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners and sinners. See, Jesus comes on the scene and his life and his message is like a flute. (laughs) His life and his message is one of joy and the offer of abundant life and forgiveness of sins and relationship with God. And the people say, "Eh, no, no, thanks. You see what's happening? Neither do they want the mournful message of John to grieve your sin, nor do they want the happy message of Jesus to have eternal life with God. They refuse to mourn with John and they refuse to dance with Jesus. They can't be pleased. And the brilliance and the power behind this original illustration is that John and Jesus in many ways are polar opposites. Polar opposites in style, demeanor and approach. And that's what gives this illustration its bite. But the Jews, on the other hand, they're like spoiled kids who are never satisfied. Hey, kids, let's go to Chick-fil-A. Oh, we wanted Culver's. Hey, kids, let's watch Frozen. No, we want to watch Frozen too. Spoiled little brats, never satisfied. That's what Jesus just called his generation. The intense and unusual John comes on the scene and they say, that dude's crazy. He is possessed, demon possessed. And and in their day, that's like the worst cut down ever. I mean, I don't know that you could say something more slanderous, more damaging than to say a person is demon possessed. They are filled with a power that is filthy and rebellious and leads to Hell and destruction. Jesus comes along playing his flute, inviting people to the dance of joy, and they say, Look at him. Every time I see him, he's at a banquet overeating and overdrinking. One commentator put it this way: John is too holy. Jesus is not holy enough. Grant Osborne said, If people want to reject, they will find a way. And so they reject, don't they? And he's comparing this generation to these kids and to these two options. And they reject both options. And what they will do is they will kill the forerunner first. They will arrest him and put him in prison and sever his head from his body. And he will go first because he's the forerunner. And even as he's dying, he's pointing behind him to the Messiah to come and say, what is happening to me is going to happen to him. But they are so vastly different. And yet look at what happens at the end of verse 19. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. It's literally declared righteous or justified. Wisdom here is personified. And what this little phrase means is that both John and Jesus in the end will be justified or vindicated before God. When the judgment comes... John's approach and John's message will be proven right. And when the judgment comes, Jesus' approach and Jesus' message will be proven right. And what he is saying there in that little phrase is that there is a judgment to come. When he says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, he is warning them that you have these two possible responses you can make. And they will be proven right in the end. Well, I will say that nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Uh, Children can still be bratty and rejecters will still find a reason to reject. When they are confronted with a John-like message of judgment and repentance, they will charge the messenger of being possessed of legalism, being judgmental, preachy, self-righteous. They will say, take it easy, preacher. Take it easy. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And so you change your tactic and you offer them love and a, an abundant life and a relationship with Christ who loves them and died for them. And you say, look, you can exchange a life of trinkets and trash and empty experiences for fulfillment and purpose and joy and peace. And and it all comes with Jesus. And they look at you unmoved. They look at you like you're speaking some foreign language. They're DOA. Their eyes are glazed over. And they say by that lack of response, I like my life just the way it is. I love my life. I love my life in this world. I love this world. And you're offering me something that doesn't really interest me. What I want to remind everyone of this morning is that when you hear the gospel, the required response to the gospel is twofold. It's both. They go together. The required response of the gospel is this. You have to go to your funeral with John. And then you go to your wedding with Jesus. You've got to go and mourn and then dance to repent and believe. This is two sides of, confer, of conversion. This is the, 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 the God-ordained response to the good news of Christ. I mourn my sin, confess it, repent of it, and then, and then I, I run to Jesus. And find in him everything I've ever needed. If it's not both, then you will be left out of the kingdom forever. If it's not both, then you're like the Jews of Jesus' generation. Who did not respond to the forerunner nor the Messiah. And this lack of response and this growing opposition brings us to the second way that Jesus here uh, deals with and confronts opposition in his day. And he does it with searing, sizzling condemnation. Follow along verses 20 to 24. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorosin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable. For the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is a searing, sizzling condemnation from the authoritative mouth of the son of God himself. Now, the main action of this second section here, as we look at it, the main verb, the main action is the word denounce. In verse 20, he began to denounce. Notice the begin. This is a new shift. Now, there's a new tone. He's going to do a lot more of this as the pages roll on. But he began to denounce, and that's an interesting word. It's a pretty rare word. Uh, Did a lot of study on this word denounce. It means to reproach. It means to censor, to upbraid. And here in the context, it means to condemn. Really, Jesus is now really going on the offensive. He was just kind of warming up with the illustration. And now he is figuratively on fire with this condemnation this little ps timeout. expository preaching introduces you to the real jesus not the jesus of the figment of our imagination or the jesus that we want him to be this is the real jesus in the real new testament condemning people who oppose him openly boldly We could even say graciously to awaken them to their destiny. See, when we deal with the Bible itself, we are confronted with the real Jesus and the depths of our depravity, the depths of our wickedness. We are so wicked at heart that we will hate this loving Jesus and despise the gift of his grace. That is how wicked we are if left to ourselves, and that's what we discover in these few verses here as he deals with these cities. What is the target of his condemnation? Well, it's three villages, really: Jeruzalem uh, and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and they are the the bullseye. They are the target for these words. And what is the reason for it? It's very plain in the text. The reason is they failed to repent despite the abundance of light that was given to them. Despite the abundance of truth that they had been exposed to. They remained indifferent. They remained aloof. They remain unmoved. And that is why they are targeted with this searing condemnation. Seeing wasn't believing, but it should have been. They were exposed to verifiable and undeniable displays of massive power. Massive power. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, the mute can talk, the lame can walk, dead or raised. All of that's taking place in these villages. And they should have repented. They should have changed their minds about Christ. They should have turned from their sins, but they didn't. And so he unleashes this threefold condemnation. It's a Syrian condemnation times three because on the basis of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. And he begins with this word, woe, in verse 21. Do you see it? Woe to you, Chorazin. This word means damned, condemned. I like the NIRV. It's a children's Bible. It says, how terrible. How terrible to you, Chorazin." Karosin. Chorazin's is a little village, very small. It's about two miles north of Capernaum. Bethsaida is another village three miles east of Capernaum. Bethsaida is the home of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. These are peaceful hamlets near the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is the biggest of the three. It was about 1,500 people, and it was there located on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But these two other cities here, as he begins, become this target, and he uses another comparison, but this time the comparison is literal. The comparison of Chorosan and Bethsaida is to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are two other cities in Israel. They're 35 and 60 miles away, respectively. They're on the Mediterranean coast. They're in the region of Phoenicia. And these two cities that are themselves about 30 miles apart were home to pagan Gentiles. And in time, Tyre and Sidon became arch enemies of the nation of Israel. They weren't just Gentiles living among the Israelites. They were hated Gentiles who hated the Israelites. And they became known for their outlandish, over-the-top arrogance and pride. So here's a flavor now of the prophetic doom that is coming to Tyre. This comes from the book of Ezekiel. And especially chapters 26, 27, and 28 talk about this. But here's just a little snippet so you get a taste of it. God speaking, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. What a picture. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers God speaking, I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. See, Tyre was a seaport, notorious for all the sins that are in every seaport all over the world with its sailors and its commerce. And Tyre was a, was a wealthy economic juggernaut. There on the Mediterranean Sea, this great, great seaport and God there in Ezekiel 26 says, I'm going to take this great city, this splendid city that is so proud of itself and I'm going to scrape it bare like a rock. And in fact, that very thing happened through the hands of Alexander the Great. This was fulfilled when Alexander the Great built a half mile long siege ramp about 300 uh, yards wide, a half mile long of debris out to the island of Tyre and laid waste to the port and scraped it like a rock. Not only Ezekiel, but also Isaiah and Joel and Amos and Zechariah, they all get into the action of pronouncing doom upon Tyre and Sidon, these ancient enemies of Israel. In fact, it's the uh, ancient, uh, arrogant king of Tyre in one of those passages in Ezekiel who was animated and empowered by the devil himself. Remember those passages? Ezekiel 28 talks about this earthly king and his arrogance. And then it begins to describe this supernatural being that is underneath him and, and empowering him. And that's the devil himself, the king of Tyre. But if they had seen... What Corozan and Bethsaida saw, Jesus says with his omniscience, with his ability to look into the past and see how, how history could have been different. Jesus says, if they had seen what you guys have seen, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They would have demonstrated true repentance, deep repentance, sincere repentance in uncomfortable clothing and symbols of death. They would have been broken under the weight of their sin. They would have been crushed by their offense against a holy God. They would have loathed their flesh and their love of money and their love of sex and their love of drink and their love of food and their love of this world. They would have they would have repented a full-on repentance if they had seen the miracles that these villages had seen. What he is saying then is this, this little sweet and innocent Corozan in Bethsaida... Are far worse sinners than those two notorious seaports because, listen, their light was brighter. Their light was greater. To whom much is given, much is required. These two villages had seen the Messiah himself in action. They had heard his word. So their sin, though on the surface wasn't as bad as Tyre and Sidon, in its depth was actually worse. As a result of their spiritual privilege, their judgment day will be worse than Tyre and Sidon. Than this great enemy of Israel that God pronounced prophetic doom upon. If you think that isn't enough, well, Jesus isn't finished. Look at verse 23. It's really a continuation of the woes. And now, I mean, he turns in full force and just... just, empties the arsenal on Capernaum and I mean you can just feel the 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 condemnation and you Capernaum you will not be exalted to heaven will you you will sink to hell for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom Which occurred in you. It would have remained to this day. Nevertheless I say to you. It will be more tolerable. More bearable. More endurable. For the land of Sodom. In the day of God's wrath and judgment. Than it will be for you. That little phrase there in verse 23, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? That's an echo of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 26, again, where the pride of Satan was animating the arrogant king of Babylon. But the question is, why was Capernaum so proud? I mean, this is not New York City we're talking about here. <laughs> I got 1500 people. It's a fishing village. Why were they so arrogant? The best explanation is simply this it was that thing we call small town pride, pride of location, pride of geographical beauty, pride of economic situation. Capernaum was a bustling fishing town. They were on the intersection of major roads. They were well situated geographically. It's a beautiful place on the Sea of Galilee. They had it all going for them. And so somewhere along the way, this little town, this little village became very, very proud to be from Capernaum. Very, very proud. And their hearts got higher and higher and higher and higher until Jesus says your hearts are lifted all the way to heaven, aren't they? (laughs) You're so full of yourself, Capernaum. So proud of your industry, so proud of your situation, but he then just rips the rug out from under them and says, "You will descend to hell." Folks, this is not necessarily a warning. there's no command here. this is a, just a statement of fact. Why is he so harsh on Capernaum? What did poor Capernaum do? that was so terrible that they get compared to Sodom? Capernaum was Jesus' ministry headquarters. Capernaum was where Jesus relocated to from Nazareth. Capernaum was his home. There is perhaps no place in human history that has had as much truth and as much light shine upon them as Capernaum. Capernaum is like the kid growing up in a Christian home is put in the church nursery, is dismissed at children's church before the sermon, goes through a Awana from three years old to sixth grade, Sunday school every week, youth group from seventh grade to twelfth grade, summer camps every year, church services every week, home devotions and parents and prayers and discussions and books and on and on it goes. We could call them the Capernaum kid. Or we could call them the Capernaum teen exposed to volumes of truth, amazing amounts of light of Christ. So much light here that Jesus leaves Tyre and Sidon, despite their notorious reputation as enemies of Israel. He leaves them to compare the coming judgment of Capernaum to Sodom. The sin of Sodom we know about, it's reported in Genesis 19, it's mentioned again in Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Lamentations. When you think of Sodom, you have discovered the most notorious and the most infamous place of evil in the Bible. Even the New Testament denounces Sodom. Sodom. Second, Peter says, if he condemned the cities, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Second, Peter two, six. Or this one, Jude seven, just as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's Jude 7. Without going into all the gory details. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah became code. For total destruction of the worst of sinners under the wrath of God. God laid these places waste. He rained fire and brimstone from heaven until it was completely a volcanic ash heap. But if Sodom had seen what Jesus did in Capernaum, Jesus says they would have repented. We come then to some closing applications. Of this uh, confrontation of opposition. Number one, like these three villages, rejection of Christ is often shown by indifference to Christ, not outright hostility. That will come later. He wasn't crucified in Capernaum, he wasn't attacked in Capernaum, he was just ignored. But indifference in the light, you see, it is indifference to this amount of light that leads to, in Jesus' estimation, the hottest of hell or the worst of judgment. And this is why when judgment day comes, the ones at greatest risk are in the church right now, not in the world. It is the church... It is the church that will have the most trouble come judgment day because the church has been exposed to the truth. Number two, there is no doubt that Capernaum loved the miracles. Crowds were huge. People were needy. They flocked to Jesus. They filled up houses. They filled up the shore. There is no doubt they loved being healed. But when the sermon turned to sin and forgiveness, the interest began to wane, right? And that's like people today as well. That's like people today that are sitting on the fringes of Christianity, many of them often growing up in Christian homes. People today love the benefits of Christianity. They love the blessings of the church. They love the fellowship. They love the overflow of morality. They love the way that if we live a life a certain way, God does tend to bless it in certain ways. They love all of the trappings of Christianity, but they don't love Christ. Am I talking to a Capernaum teenager this morning? Just living on the overflow of Christianity, but not living off of Christ? Number three. This is a strong, strong warning then, because it's not too late. (laughs) It's a strong warning to those who have replaced personal repentance with, I grew up in a Christian family. With, I go to church on a regular basis. I'm an American. I'm a good person. Jesus is directing these words toward people just like that. These weren't the vilest of sinners. These weren't the sodomites. These weren't the, the worst people in the world, the, the, the criminals and the thugs and the prisoners and all of these things. These are people going about their daily business who see miracles of Christ, who are interested and love the miracles, but do not have time of day to repent of their sin and follow Christ as the Messiah. And that's a world of difference. There are people like that all over the place. They like the trappings of Christianity. They just don't like Jesus. Jesus. Because Jesus is a threat to your autonomy and your pride and your ability to live the way you want to live. Beloved, this text this morning is a massive wake up call to the respectable businessman or the gracious grandmother or the compliant child sitting in a pew every week, Bible in hand, but rejecting Christ in their heart. In their heart they're indifferent, in their heart they're aloof, in their heart they're standoffish, in their heart they're cold, in their heart they're dead. Woe to you, church attender, with your smug indifference. Woe to you, church attender, with your camouflaged rejection of Christ. Woe to you, Capernaum kid, an indifferent teenager. Judgment will be more tolerable for rioters... And looters and homosexuals who haven't heard the gospel, then it will be for you. That's what this text is saying. But it's not too late. What should you do? What should you do? Well, first you should beat your chest to the melody of John's funeral dirge. You should go to your own funeral. You should own your sin, confess your sin, repent of your sin, die to yourself, go to your own funeral. Let your life, the way you want it to be, come to an end so that you can have the exchanged life. And then join the dance to the music of Jesus' wedding song as he plays the flute and invites you in to a relationship with him, a relationship where you become a son or daughter of God, adopted into his family. A relationship where you have a seat at the table, forgiveness of sins, eternal life with God, hope, purpose, joy. It's a dance. It's a relationship. It's full of abundant life. He's calling you in with that music of the gospel. Hear John, hear Jesus respond to both. It's not too late. It's not too late. Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning. That as the gospel has gone forth in this place, that the response to John's message and Jesus' message would be forthcoming. All by your grace. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to convict the unbeliever in this room of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And Holy Spirit, we ask you this moment to open the eyes of the blind so that they may see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Lord, there's no worse words to hear for all eternity than woe to you. I pray today that that person under conviction, even now, in their heart of hearts, would surrender all and come to Jesus.